why did God send his son into the world? To be born in a lowly manger. Why did God send his divine son to take on our human nature, our human flesh? Why did God send his son to redeem all who would look to him, believe in him through his life, death, and resurrection. I want us to hear the words of a, of a pastor from uh, England who wrote this about 150 years ago. And I hope these words will continue to, to ring in our hearts as we go through this Christmas season on the very purpose of God sending his son to us. It says this, it's one perfection of God shines out in redemption with greater brilliance than any other. It is this. Love is the focus of all the rest. The golden thread which draws and binds them all together in holy and beautiful cohesion. Love, one of the movie, controlling attributes in God's great meaning of saving sinners. Justice may have demanded it. Holiness may have required Wisdom may have planned it. And power may have executed it. But love originated the whole. It was the moving cause in the heart of God. So that the salvation of the sinner is not so much a manifestation of the justice or holiness or wisdom or power of God as it is a display of his love. Winslow is saying that love was the motivation behind God's great work of redemption. One of Jesus' disciples, he's actually sometimes known as the beloved disciple, John, would say it this way in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, he would say this, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world. So why did God send his son into the world? The answer is to demonstrate his measureless love to the world. And yet, today, we know that so many fail to receive this so many fail to welcome the great love of God, choosing rather at great cost for themselves to reject a gift that is so free. So as we think on Christmas, as we think on why God would send His Son to us, we think about the fact that God gives us all these gifts in the ultimate gift of the Son of Jesus Christ. We looked at a couple of weeks ago a passage out of Isaiah 9 and the, the light of Christmas, that Jesus comes to bring the light of Christmas and it is a light that carries great joy with. Last week we examined how, how Jesus is the hope of Christmas, that he brings this great hope of, of justice for the nations. Today, I want us to think on what it means that Jesus brings the peace of Christmas. So if you have your Bibles, open up 
to Micah chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 this morning. So if you're using one of the Bibles that we provided for you, that's on page 778 in the Bibles that we provided for you. So I want to, to read uh, the, the first few verses here of, of our chapter. And as we get into this, I want just to provide a little bit of the context. Micah, like his contemporary Isaiah, who we looked at in the last couple weeks, was a pre-exilic prophet. And that just simply means that Isaiah was telling of these events before they came to pass. And what he is doing, that even in this, this message of, of gloom and despair, that God's people would be exiled to Babylon, he still gives great hope and a message of salvation. And so we're going to see that these verses teach us that Jesus provides lasting peace to all who would receive him by faith. Let's look at the first few verses, first three verses of Micah chapter 5. Micah writes the words of God. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With her eye, they strike the judge of Israel. But you, O Bethlehem of who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. From you, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Here's, here's the first truth that I want to think on this morning. First, first encouragement for us out of this text is, is that we should reflect the humility that Jesus displays to the world. Verse 1 sets the tone, and it's not an encouraging tone, it's quite a negative tone. It says that there is coming a great humiliation for the people of Israel. They will soon be under siege, and look what it says, it says their king will be struck in the face. God sets forth this humiliating picture for his people. I mean, can you imagine our country being under siege. Our president, no matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican or an Independent or a Libertarian or a Whig, it's not something the only thing you're here, okay? No matter what your political preference may be, that would be a great, great strike against our national pride, would it not? And this is exactly what's coming to the people of Israel. And this reality is coming because of their covenant unfaithfulness to God. You see, that spiritually speaking, that the people of Israel had spiraled downward. And we see this for in two primary ways. Number one, they had exchanged the, their true worship, a pure worship of God, for the secretistic worship. They had taken on other gods. They had worshipped the gods that their hands had made, these idols that they had fabricated among themselves. And they forsook the true worship of their 
great God. But then number two, and Micah spent a lot of time in his little uh, prophecy here, speaking of the great social injustices of his day. So during this time, economically, Israel was prospering. It was much affluent, but the rich were exploiting the poor among them. And so Micah spends quite a bit of time crying out against these social crimes of his day. So this is the, the, the spiritual setting, the moral landscaping, the spiritual landscape of Israel was egregious. But yet, against this dark scene, what Micah is going to do is he's going to speak a word from God in verse 2 that gives forth this ray of hope. And what does he say? He says that there's a coming king, but this king will come in a most unexpected way. He says in verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem of Hathor, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origins from old to old, from ancient days. So think about this. This ruler, this coming king, is going to come from Bethlehem. It says Bethlehem of Pathra. That, that is the, the ancient name for Bethlehem. In other words, the, the little town of Bethlehem was not on the national map. It did not carry much significance for the people of Israel, so much so that Micah has to clarify which Bethlehem we're talking about, that there was another Bethlehem in Zebulun. So it's quite unexpected and surprising that there would be a king from tiny Bethlehem. And yet this is how our God chooses to work. And in this we begin to see a glimpse of the humility of Christ. God became came man. But even more than that, God became a humble man in the person of Christ. It's difficult for us to wrap our minds around just how humble Christ was. But Paul writes of it in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8, he says this. He's encouraging us to be like Christ. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born to the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So think about Paul's exegetical interpretation of the person of Christ. He's saying, Jesus, who is God, did not count it uh, equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. It means that, that he did not make use of all of his divine rights as the Son of God, as, as one who was fully God and yet fully man, but he takes on our nature in the form of a servant, and he would become obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. This is the self-sacrificing nature of Christ. This is how far he would stoop to accommodate himself to us, to condescend to us. And in the sight of God, and in the wisdom of God, it is a glorious reality. 
God uses the unexpected. God uses those who were the, the weak, the least. He uses kings who were not the firstborn, but the lastborn. To rule over this people. So our great Messiah, but the eternal Son of God, wrapped in human flesh. And in this we see how God is both transcendent and he is imminent. In other words, Jesus being fully God is over all things. He reigns above all things, and yet as holy man, he understands us. He knows everything that we go through. This is what the writer of Hebrews talked about in Hebrews chapter 4. When he says, For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So in the humility of Christ, we have a God who is not simply detached from what's going on in our world, but a God who steps into the fabric of our very existence to identify with us. To serve, to serve us. And even to die for us. The amazing truth of Christmas. Why God sent His Son into the world. So we know that that Bethlehem was such a a humble little town. And yet, we also know that Bethlehem was the the place where kings were born. We see going on in verse 2 that that it says that that from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. We know that King David, Israel's greatest king, was born in Bethlehem. And just to make a couple of observations about, about the, the end of verse 2. He says that this ruler is going to come forth. It's going to be a ruler over Israel, but he's going to rule for me. So everything that Christ did, he did the glory of God the Father. He said, I delight to do your will, oh God. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Everything is for the Father's glory. And yet, with this humble king, we even start to see echoes of his deity. You see, we can understand this, this phrase from, from, from of, of old origins, of, from ancient days. We can understand that, contextually speaking, as from Bethlehem, as one whose lineage dates back to ancient days, as one who would be the Davidic Messiah, as Israel was hoping for and anticipating. And there is probably, certainly, that is the case, but... Even still, I would not hesitate too much to side with other scholars who would see hints of eternality. That Christ is from ancient days. And that he is our great God. And so Jesus as King, Jesus as the humble King, certainly should have some instruction for us, right? I mean, if, if God would stoop so low to come to us in the person of Christ, should we not also 
we ready to humble ourselves to, as Wilkinson soon talks about, to count others more significant, better than ourselves, and we should also take a posture of the service. And just get ready. This is, um, you're going to have an opportunity. And uh, believe me, I'm preaching to myself here too. We're going to have an opportunity to serve others. This Christmas season. It may be rushing to the Christmas tree to hand out that first gift instead of receiving it. It might be getting up to help set the table for Christmas dinner or even cleaning up Shepherd. 
He is an active king. He is a strong king. And he's going to shepherd them how? In the strength of the Lord. So think about this. Jesus is not a weak leader. He is not a weak king. He is one who accomplishes all that he sets out to accomplish. For all of history, Jesus has an undefeated record. Much like the freshman Mephler Mustang. For a one note this season, thank you very much. Lord, <laughs> um, keep us humble. Pride comes before the fall. This is one game. But unlike the Metro Mustangs, who officially made lose a game to this year, Jesus never loses a battle. He always accomplishes his purposes. And that will continue for all eternity. He also brings security through his impeccable character. It's not just in the strength of the Lord, but it's in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. So what does that mean? I believe we can paraphrase it by saying that Jesus as king will lead his people in the greatness and the dignity of the character of God. A lot of times in the, in the Bible, when we see this, this, this idea of name, it goes back to character and all that a person represents. So Jesus as God, Jesus as King, deserves our respect and our reverence, but it, He is one that we can trust. We have to the character of God, the nature of God. He leads us with benevolence and care and love. And then also verse 4 teaches us that this security He's going to establish is going to be one of lasting lasting peace. It will not be a peace just for a passing season. It will be a peace that will endure. We will remain in it. We will continue in Christ's peace. We think about some of the great Christmas texts. Some we've read together on Sunday morning. What about Luke 2, 14? What are the, what are the angels announced to the shepherds? They say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those who have been here. Look what we find is this peace is comprehensive. It is both physical peace and spiritual peace. So think on this with me, if you will. Number one, Jesus brings physical peace. So how can we be confident in this? Well, verse 4 says that he will be great to the end of the earth. We think on down in chapter 5, and we find out that just as Isaiah 9 told us about a couple of weeks ago, Jesus will bring the end of all war. All war will cease. This week marks the end of our time on earth. And we as a country rejoice in fact our troops will, will no longer be there, but they are coming home. And in that, we have just the faintest case of what it will be like when Jesus causes all war to cease. All war will come to end. There will be no fear of intrusion, no more nuclear, nuclear threats, no more missiles, machine guns, or murder. Jesus will bring complete peace. But what is more, Jesus not only brings physical peace, but he also brings spiritual peace. 
And he's saying, where do, you, where do you see this in the text? Well, jump down to verse 10 with me. And let's read verses 10 through 15 of Micah chapter 5. This is what Micah writes. And in that day, declared the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land, and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortune. And I will cut off your carved images, and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your city. And in anger and wrath will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. So what Mike is saying is that this coming king will completely eradicate the idols of our land and the idols of our hearts. If we are being honest, when we look into the mirror of our spiritual life, we know that there are so many things in our lives, so many pursuits, whether that's a, a, a better job, more money, a relationship, whatever you fill in the blank, we realize that there are so many things in our life that compete for our allegiance, compete for our affection, and want to replace the rightful affection and allegiance that belongs in our heart to God with something lesser than. A little God, lowercase g, an idol. But what Michael says is that Christ will one day completely eradicate all idols from our hearts. So if that's going to be the case, then shouldn't we strive for that now? In the words again of John in 1 John, the end of his letter, chapter 5, verse 21, what does he say? Just and so this little exhortation, he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. So I thought I'd take the opportunity just to address one particular idol that I think the is Americans really battle to so probably a greater degree than we are. And that's the idol of materialism. And I think that the spirit of Christmas should, of all realities, undercut this idol in our heart. Listen to this. The National Retail Federation forecasts that Americans will spend $469 billion on Christmas this year. So with that knowledge, let's bring it home and say, what about us? How much have we already spent on Christmas? How much will we receive this Christmas? And, perhaps a more pointed question, how much will we spend on what really? Listen to this. It will take an estimated 10 to 30 billion to provide clean water and clean sanitation to the almost one billion people in the world who lack. And that's it. 10 to 30 billion. And we spent 469 billion, almost one and a half months out of five years on one billion. But we would move to spiritual needs. 
if we would choose to give more to the cause of missions in the world, we could send more missionaries out from our churches. We could put more missionaries all over the world in places that desperately need the gospel of Jesus. So, what are we willing to do about it? Are we willing to revisit our Christmas budget and maybe kind of revise it a bit? And you say, Tina, you know, like, this is great. The Sunday before Christmas, like, next week, we're going to open, like, now you want me to feel guilty for, like, every package that I unwrap and feel guilty about this gift that I've given or received? Like, it's like, no. That's not the intention. But perhaps we say, well, you know, this year I'm done, and I've kind of taken care of all this. Well, I'm not encouraging us to take all of our, our gifts back to the store. Giving gifts, even as God has an example for us, it's one way that we show our love for one another, right? Giving gifts is not a bad thing. But when we have greed in our hearts and we practice so much excess as American Christians, Christians, perhaps we need to revisit it. Perhaps we could take that one gift or two, and we could take those resources and give it a greater Perhaps if this year is, is done, you don't even want to take that step, perhaps you could just be thinking about next year, how can I tweak our budget, our spending on Christmas, to do a little less on ourselves and a little more for the sake of God? Something hard, right? But it do make such a difference in the life of Listen, as a church, and this is in no way going to pat ourselves on the back. We're a new church. We're taking baby steps as a church, right? But this week, we're going to provide a Christmas dinner. Some of you should be A Christmas dinner for 50 families and veterans through the Boys and Girls Club. We're going to provide not only a nice meal for but we're going to provide a gift card for them so that their family can have a little bit nicer of a Christmas this year. And then also, it's not... It's not just that we can meet some physical needs, but we can also meet some spiritual needs, and we can even do those simultaneously, right? It's not that I'm in competition against the other. We're also taking up a, a great commission offering. It's above and beyond a regular giving, so that 75% of what we give will go to God's work in the world, and 25% will go to His work right here in our own country. To start new churches all over America, and most certainly all over the world, and places that have little to no gospel. So let's examine our heart and let's consider generosity. When we look at Christmas, what Christmas is about, Christmas is about God's generosity to us. And we should want to reflect that same generosity back to him and to the world. So Jesus is a king who eradicates the idols from our hearts. We can put off greediness and we can put on generosity and humility. And how does he do this? He does it, as you see at the beginning of verse 5, he does it himself. What does, 
What does the text say? It says, and he shall be their peace. This peace that we find, the peace of Christmas, is found in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And we are so tempted, right? This is true in our own lives, it will be true again this Christmas, but it's certainly true in our spiritual life. We often focus more on the gifts we receive than the giver of those gifts. And we do this spiritually, right? Oh God, you met my needs. You provided this. You answered that prayer. <coughs> and yet sometimes we begin to love those gifts more than we love the gifts. For Christ is our peace. And my gift turns our attention back to not just the fruit of all that Jesus brings to us, but the very giver himself. So let's just pose as we move toward wrapping up our time in God's work. I'd like to pose that we can't read Micah 5, 4 and 5 without hearing the reverberation of John chapter 10 in these verses. It's there that Jesus said this, all along with me if you like. He says, the thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came. Why did Jesus come? Why did God send his son? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. So listen to me. If, if you are in Christ, Jesus is your good shepherd. You let this astound you. Let, let this like do something to your afternoon. Alright? Jesus knows you. Jesus cares for you. Jesus is intimately acquainted with every detail of your life. Jesus loves you. Jesus is protecting you, even now. There's no trial, no challenge, no difficulty over which Christ is not concerned and intimately involved. And even more than this, Jesus died for says, I'm the good shepherd, and I will lay my life down for the sheep. It's the paradox of Christmas. Why did God send his son into the world? He sent his son so that his son would lay down his life, and here's the paradox, so that we can have life. Do you have life? Do you have the abundant life that Christ came to give us? True joy, true meaning in life, true peace, peace with others, and peace with God. Why did God send His Son into the world? You remember First John one nineteen. What does it say again? I didn't read the whole verse. Okay, there's more to the verse. He says this. 
And this, the love of God was manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God sent his son to us. Not simply to demonstrate his immeasurable and incomprehensible love, but he did so that we might know that love and have life through him. So, do you know the love of God? Do you know the life that God offers to us through him? It's the only life worth living. It's abundant and it's great. So the encouragement this morning, as if every week we gather together, is to receive. If you do not have a relationship with God, if you're not certain that you have peace with God, then God offers that to you through this good shepherd, Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for our sin, that we might be reconciled to God. But the gift that we initially receive as believers in Him is the same gift that we need to receive every single day. We need to say, God, I need your life today. I need your life like four this afternoon when I'm tired and I can't study another hour for this exam. I need you. I need you when I have family members who are not doing well spiritually or physically and they're sick and they're hurting. And I need you here, Lord. Jesus Christ, see you again, this is